Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Andy, it is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. I love The Next Reel Season 4. Do you know why? I don't. Why? Because we got to talk about my favorite movie, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. That's not even an adaptation. Uh, no, but it was such a great part of our, of our great Terry Gilliam series. And a few others in that series were adaptations, like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, adapted from Raspi's stories, and La Jete, which inspired 12 Monkeys. Oh, right. And, and for our Man With No Name trilogy, we saw how Sergio Leone's A Fistful of Dollars was basically stolen from Kurosawa's Yojimbo. We added Labor Day to our Jason Reitman series, adapted from Joyce Maynard's novel. Oof, there's one we'll always regret. Our big Stephen King series covered adaptations like The Shining, Cujo, Christine, and Stand By Me, great horror, and coming-of-age tales. Another Coen Brothers adaptation, too. We got to talk about how they turned Homer's The Odyssey into Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? For our holiday series, we did The Bishop's Wife and The Poseidon Adventure. And who could forget seeing Alec Guinness in the adaptation of Kind Hearts and Coronets during our series dedicated to him. We really need to do more of his films. Truly. We had our first film noir series with classics like Double Indemnity, Detour, and Out of the Past. And our black and white cinematography of James Wong Howe series with The Thin Man, Sweet Smell of Success, Seconds, and King's Row. So many adaptations. Oh, you're not kidding. Dive deeper into these originals and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support our show. Get the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and start reading today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. So we had a uh, we had an awesome film board. Yeah. Remember that? Oh, it was yeah. just the other day. Super awesome. The film board assembled. We did the uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. It was great fun. Uh, thanks, everybody, who has downloaded and listened to that. And make sure you go check out the blog, because we, I, I don't, I mean, there was a call to action, apparently. Oh, yes. Uh, from from Tommy Handsome. That he, he it actually wasn't even in reference to Avengers, right? Uh, it wasn't this. Well, no, it was specifically uh, referencing Ultron. Oh, right. Because Ultron, his eyes blink and his mouth moves. Yeah, but what was it that made him want to give, made Tommy want to give out little Tommy Oscars? The... I, I thought it was about Jurassic Park when he started talking about Jurassic World and he got so excited he wanted to talk start giving out little Tommy Oscars. Oh, maybe. Now I've forgotten and I was there. I forgot too. I can't remember. Well, anyway, Tommy Oscars. so there was a call to action uh, about how great it would be if somebody would design uh, a, a Tommy Oscar and somebody did and it's fantastic and it's on the blog and so you can go see it and it's the, from the, the gracious and talented uh, Joel Harris who is also host of the Gracious and Talented If You Like podcast, uh, which I've talked about before on the show. If you haven't listened to that, you should. Uh, it's a concept that just doesn't get old for me. Uh, and he drew, he went and he found a picture of Tommy Handsome. And it is, it is inspiring. <laughs> it is an award. It is for the first time. And I'm not really an awards guy. Like, I've never really been motivated by awards. I want to win a Tommy Oscar. Everybody should want to win a Tommy Oscar. <laughs> yes, everybody should. So uh, I think uh, I think the first step is I'm definitely going to put that on a shirt. And uh, the second step is I'm going to try and get that made into a real Oscar. So if anybody has any experience turning an, uh, an animated or a hand-drawn picture of an Oscar into a real 3D trophy, uh, please let me know. Uh, message me on Twitter at Pete Wright because... I this is my this is the next <laughs> thing that is the most important thing in my life. I mean, you know, this is fantastic. Family, family, children, food, health, safety, all that, and then Tommy Oscar. <laughs> but you should also read the blog not only for the Tommy Oscar, which is up there now, but you should also read the blog for uh, Tommy. Is had his blog debuted? Have you read his post? I have, and he is. Uh, it's true <laughs> form for Tommy. It is so true to form for Tommy. It was so. So funny! It is. It's it's Tommy's take on the uh, laws of robotics at work in Age of Ultron, and he has some, uh, I think, astute points delivered only as Tommy Handsome could deliver them. Absolutely. Check him out on the blog. How's your week? It's good. It's good. You know, I've uh, I've been um, I've been watching the um, you know the Disney animated films with my kids, starting at the beginning and slowly working my way through the whole chronology. Yeah, and we yeah. just we just finished Sword in the Stone. Which is, you know, it's not one of my favorites, but no. uh, the kids love it. And the thing that I enjoy so much about doing the, watching these with the kids is, you know, I have their own little flick chart accounts for each of them. And we flick chart 
each movie as we go. And inevitably, especially for my youngest, and I think it's just the brain of a four-year-old, every time we watch something, that always ends up like at the top of his chart. Because <laughs> he just saw it. It's the freshest in his mind, so it's his new favorite. And so it cracks me up because, you know, oh, this is the best one. This is the best. And so it always ends up being the top. And it happens with my daughter a bit. Although, interestingly enough, um, Avengers Age of Ultron, she said, is her new favorite movie. Really? It beat out Guardians of the Galaxy, which beat out Maleficent. So, yeah, now it's Avengers Age of Ultron. That's good. That's good. Which is funny because it's, you know, other than Guardians of the Galaxy, it's the first one that she's really seen. And she was a barrage of nonstop questions. What is that thing doing? What is this? What is that big stick that with the glowing thing on it? And, oh, that's Loki's staff, and it, and so it's like constant through don't the worry. whole movie. You, you and won't after have to worry about it for that for much longer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh. that's awesome. Yeah, so it's fun. Did you, you now? I know we talked about this. You're not. You don't watch the uh, Agents of Shield. I don't. I don't. It's one that I'd like to, uh, but you know, there's just too many things. There, there, there's too many things. That is the truth. But I just have to say that it, Agents of Shield. If you were ever gonna watch, it's the most fun to watch uh, before, immediately before, and immediately after one of these tentpole movies, right? Uh, because it all ties in so so well. And and uh, so we, I know we're we're recording this a few days early, and so by the time this show airs there will be even another episode that has happened <laughs> since uh, <laughs> Ultron came out. But uh, I just have to say, I really uh, am enjoying what they're doing. And this was the first week uh, that they actually said the word inhumans when referring to these uh, powered people. And so, you know, you can just feel it now. They're they're building up. They're starting the long, slow build to, uh, uh, you know, another major tentpole series. I know we'll have Civil War coming up, which, oh my goodness. Have you seen just how fully loaded that cast is? No, I haven't looked at it. Oh, man. It's, well, you know, everybody's in it. It's like, an, it's it, it, somebody on Twitter, I, I'll have to post the link, somebody on Twitter said it's, it's really more like uh, uh, Avengers 2.5 uh, because <laughs> everybody's, everybody's in it. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, it is... Yeah, I'm looking at it now. It yeah. is pretty much everybody. It's the first uh, movie to be shot entirely. The next Avengers movies are the first shot entirely with IMAX cameras. Yeah, but that's not Winter or uh, uh, Civil War, though. That's, that's Avengers. Infinity War. The Avengers Infinity movie. War. Right. Avengers right, yeah. Infinity War. Captain yeah. America Civil War. And that's the thing that's a little bit strange. Is because Captain America is such a... It is, you know, you expect it to be kind of a... What's the word? Captain America film? Uh, right. That has actually all the Avengers in it. Um, it it's a little bit weird, uh, but still should be very cool. And that one finally will be worth actually seeing in an IMAX theater. They haven't yeah. announced who's playing Spider Man yet. I don't see him on the no, cast list. The new Peter someone. Parker. No. So Pete. you have you have the list, the cast list, right in front of you. Uh, well, we've got uh, Elizabeth Olsen, Scarlet Witch, and yeah. we've got Black Widow, Captain America, Iron Man, Hawkeye, Agent Thirteen. Winter Soldier, Ant-Man, The Falcon, Baron Zemo, Martin Freeman as somebody, Crossbones, Black Panther, War Machine is rumored, General Ross is rumored as William Hurt again. So, uh, Yeah, that's 16. That's a heck of a lot. One, two, three, four. <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to try counting. And then Spider-Man, who's not on here. Yeah, yet, Spider-Man, so. right. 
I mean, I, they they have to, and and that's the thing I think people are getting upset about. And this was the the general sense of this article on the Verge was, oh, it may be too big. I, it's big. I don't think it's it's impossible to make a film that big, as proven by Ultron, which I obviously quite enjoyed. Um, but I think I, I just have to keep myself in that comic mindset. These comics are at their very strongest when there are, you know, at the extremes. Like if they are, I, I love the new spinoff Hawkeye uh, comic book, which is very much at least I, you know, I haven't read a whole bunch of them, but at least when I was reading it, it was very much a sort of an intimate kind of here's what's going on with this guy. We get to explore this guy and his world or at the other extreme when all these wonderful characters get to interact in some new way. And and that, I think, is what Civil War and, and uh, Infinity Wars uh, lets us sort of play with. And so I, you know, I don't think I'd rather think of it as, as an opportunity to play in a bigger sandbox than to worry that it's going to be terrible. Yeah. So that's it. That's well, my that's I, my platform. I hope I like it. I hope it's not another. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed Ultron. I just I just didn't end up loving it. And I, I hope that. I'm able to enjoy these more uh, as they uh, keep building. Me too. We'll see. Yeah. Me too. All right. Uh, shall we tell the people, uh, you know, the drill? Yeah. Where are we from? This is the next reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there's Andy Nelson. Good day. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the third in our epic dystopian action extravaganza with George Miller's 1985 Mad Max 3 Beyond Thunderdome. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at the next reel. Subscribe on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the next reel as well. And if you feel like the one thing you really, really need in your gritty, dystopian, violent action feature film is a healthy dose of adorable children, you need to head over to Instagram.com slash the next reel and play the next reel's Instagram hashtag pony prize hashtag guess the movie challenge. Andy, how did we do against the Lost Boys this week? You know, the Lost Boys... They kind of uh, took us to task this week, I think. <laughs> they lost spanking. I, I think it's I think it's fair to say that uh, if we were uh, if we were battling the uh, the people in this uh, dystopian future, we would have been the people who had our our camel <laughs> truck stolen from us. <laughs> I am so sorry to hear that. Yes, but you know it's all okay. Uh, yes, it only took two images. A oh, quick, oh! A, I know a speedy little two images Ooh. for uh, for buyer malt or beer malt, perhaps. Uh, it's actually this Byron is a new, Thompson. This is this a is, new person. This is a new person, Byron Thompson, aka Buyer Malt. Uh, came in two images in and nailed it. Got it. The answer was the wonderful film, "The Best Years of Our Lives" by William Wyler from uh, 1946. Man, that second image, that's, that's a party in any, like, 1930, 40, 50s era. So that's anything. That's people having a good time is what that is. It's. I, I am surprised that uh, Byron was able to nail it on that image. And that was I mean, amazing. Maybe, maybe the first image helped t- tip it off, you know, the... Uh, yeah, the, the airplane. That great kind of warplane. But wow. uh, I know. All right. So, so good old uh, Bayer Malt is entered to win our 2015 Pony Prize. Well played, Bayer Malt. Well played. 
Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. You know, I heard that they were remaking Vacation. And it's not remake of Vacation. They're continuing the Vacation story. <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's another sequel. I can't believe yeah, it. Yeah, which is brilliant. Having <laughs> having uh, having uh, young Rusty Griswold, all grown up now, played by Ed Helms, bringing his family to Wally World, taking the the infamous road trip that his father took back in the original Vacation. Um, I love the concept. I was a little skeptical about it. I mean, I love the first vacation and the third vacation. The second and fourth never really did much for me. Although, to be fair, I haven't seen either of them in a long time. Um, so maybe I would enjoy them more. Maybe I would enjoy them less. I don't really know. <laughs> but I um, I really was skeptical about this one because I knew it would, could have been something that really just went off the rails. But I feel like... They are capturing the great humor from the first vacation, and I feel like they are taking it also to this meta filmmaking level of all these referential in jokes. And <laughs> I really just <laughs> en- enjoy the tone of the whole thing. Uh, it's got, uh, like I said, Ed Helms playing Rusty Griswold. Um, his wife is played by Christine Applegate. And they've got a couple kids that they're two sons that they're bringing to uh, to Wally World. Um, he goes to see his sister Audrey, who's played by Leslie Mann, and their parents are Chevy Chase and, and Beverly D'Angelo. Return. We get to see uh, the Clark and Ellen Griswold again, and uh, and you know insanity ensues as we come to expect, including a hilarious bit by Chris Hemsworth. I'm not quite sure. I think he's <laughs> renting them like a, a bed and breakfast or a, <laughs> or something. And his bit in the trailer, it's a red band trailer, folks. Don't watch this with your children around. <laughs> because it is one of the, the most hilarious lewd scenes I've seen in a very long time. So uh, I am, this is shot up to my, uh, toward the top of my summer must see list. I, I am very excited to see this. I think it's going to be, just hilarious and uh, absolutely looking forward to it. <laughs> Chris Hemsworth's name is Stone, Stone Crandall. <laughs> <laughs> I let me just say first of all that um, I I really believe Ed Helms was born to play this part. <laughs> he certainly seems it, doesn't he? <laughs> it is. I had no idea that he would grow up to be rusty and I will never see him any other way again. Right. It is so perfect. I'm very excited to see some other uh, folks in the cast. Nick Kroll is one of my very favorite uh, comedians, uh, obviously from the Kroll show, which is awesome and subversive. And of course the league, which I've mentioned on this thing, if you're not watching the league, it is also one of my very favorites. Um, and Charlie day. I love Charlie day. Um, and, uh, so glad to see him. Uh, every time I see him, I I laugh. Uh, uh, so yeah. there are some some and Caitlin Olson too. Charlie Day, Caitlin Olson from uh, um, uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. All oh, right, right. Yeah. So it just yeah. looks great. Sam Levine, very funny people in this. They've just got a great cast beyond the 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 headlining cast. It's just really fills out nicely with a lot of very funny people. So it's a, yeah, it's a strong comedy cast. Yeah, they very really strong. Fleshed it out well. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and and Keegan Michael Key, you know uh, that's uh, 
Um, right, yeah. Uh, I can't wait. When does it hit? Not uh, soon It comes enough? out end of July, July 29th. That's actually sooner than I thought. Uh, considering that, uh, yeah, we're in mid-May here. Yeah. It's uh, moving fast. Wow. That's great. Looking forward mm-hmm. to it. Absolutely. Uh, you know, mine... I didn't, yes. I didn't expect to, to do this one. <laughs> I actually had another one. I was going to do, uh, what was it, like Gilbert or Gottfried or something. I can't remember what it was called. It's uh, it's the Culkin, uh, not Culkin. Who, who is the, uh, well, never mind. I have no I'm idea. not even going to do it anymore. So, But it looks really brooding. But then it came out, it's like been out for a while. It just hasn't gotten a theatrical release. So I gave up on that. And then I, then I ran into <sighs> Ricky and the Flash. Mm-hmm. This is uh, uh, Sebastian Stan, Meryl Streep, Kevin Klein. Uh, uh, you know, it's got some people in it that I like, but mostly I'm doing it for Rick Springfield because Rick Springfield is in it. Mm. And it was after I watched this trailer, which is a feel-good kind of a family coming back together kind of a story about an aging rock star mother who has abandoned her family and now she has to come back and meet her family again kind of and deal with the the pain that that causes after having abandoned them and and you know there it looks like there come some kind of sweet moments i like the fact that meryl streep is doing something i have totally never seen her do and that always i i find entertaining because it appears that there uh, there isn't something that i have never seen her do that she can't as it turns out do uh, and so this one, I feel like, is a is a fun test for the uh, awesomely talented Meryl Streep. And then, you know, it's from director Jonathan Demme. And, you know, Jonathan Demme, right? I mean, there's some things in, in Jonathan Demme's past that I am a fan of. Uh, and then, then I, and this is why I actually had to write you personally and apologize because it's a Diablo Cody. <laughs> I, I knew that was why. I didn't know it was a Diablo Cody film, but as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, that's why Pete's apologizing to me. Right? It's subversive, because I tell me you didn't see the trailer and find yourself saying, huh, hmm, curious. Yeah. yeah, no, I did. And then you saw that it was a Diablo Cody film, and I know you have a, a thing. Um, I, I, I I'm feel like I'm changing a tune, or changing <gasps> a cor- it taking a corner. Not, I haven't taken it yet, but I feel like, you know what, I need to give her a shot. Okay, well, maybe this that. is going to be that film. Maybe. Maybe it is. Maybe. maybe. Although Jonathan Demme often disappoints as of late. Although, I will say uh, a little a little surprise tidbit that you may not know. But did you know I've worked on a film with Jonathan Demme? That is a surprise tidbit. That may be bigger than a tidbit. Tell me about this. What did you work uh, on with Diablo Cody? On, with uh, a Jonathan Demme, you mean? Yeah. Right, Jonathan Demi. <laughs> I have not Jonathan Cody, worked Demi Diablo. With Diablo Cody. Uh, Jimmy Carter, Man from Planes, his documentary following uh, Jimmy Carter around oh, while he darn. was doing his book tour. I worked on that I, just briefly when they came through Phoenix on, uh, on Carter's book tour, and I came on board and helped out, and it was kind of fun to you know work in the room with uh, Demi as he... I mean, it's funny seeing him. You know, he, He's always been kind of the jumping between the documentaries and the and the feature films and he kind of loves those styles and him i mean he just he was running around with his little camera filming uh filming carter in the bookstore as he was talking to people and, and everything and it's crazy it was it was an interesting book tour because there was it's all about you know palestine and and carter is all about peace and 
it just creates major crowds of you know of people on both sides and i think that's why uh demi wanted to do this documentary partly because it creates so much fervor on both sides of the aisle when when you're dealing with uh, palestine and it was a very interesting thing to kind of be a part of it was only just for the phoenix portion of it but it was fun to be a part of it with jimmy carter and with jonathan demi it was a neat little project that's an awesome story yeah man you're full of them <laughs> have, full you, of it. <laughs> have you seen uh, i mean so jonathan demi has a lot of credibility for me based on his films from the 80s and early 90s i mean i yeah I, oh, absolutely, it, absolutely you know he's yeah, silence of the lambs and you know one of my very favorites have you seen swimming to cambodia i've not oh that is it's you know what it's one of my very favorite film experiences it's not really it's not quite a narrative film it's definitely a documentary it's spalding gray's experience uh, working on uh, the killing fields and um, you know troubles of cambodia and and what goes on there and so it but much of it is just spalding gray's kind of talking tour reading from a from a notebook on a table and it's it is just such a an incredibly powerful storytelling experience. I, I really love it. Hmm. Uh, and that was a Jonathan Demi joint. So I, you know, I'm, uh, he's, he's got some cred for me. So I give this one a chance. I, I think it, it might be worth checking out or at least checking out the trailer for Ricky and the flash comes out 7th of August, 2015. Excellent. Andy. Yes. I think we're all dead meat. The world had been through a trial by fire, and only the greatest warriors and their deadliest enemies emerged from the flames. Who are you? Nobody. Mister, I can feel it. The dice are rolling. <laughs> he was the one they called mad. But he's just a raggedy man. But to those whose lives hung in the balance... Where's the whiting ones? Whiting for what? Whiting for you. He was the one they called hero. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Now, Mad Max is back in Beyond Thunderdome. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. 1985 action adventure thriller uh picks up the story of max rockatansky former australian policeman uh who is still dealing with the now slightly more post-apocalyptic um uh challenges of the australian landscape i didn't they never say that uh say well no they never say specifically but this takes place 15 years after the second film yes okay right i which makes a lot more sense because there really is no fuel anymore. I mean, we see when we first see him, he is in a car being pulled by camels. Yes, that is right. And, and his and hair the, is definitely 15 years longer. <laughs> it definitely is. Yeah, they don't really have any barbers. No right. need for barbers. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> 15 years later. Which And, uh, and, so, and so it's a little bit strange. It stars, obviously, Mel Gibson. Uh, newcomer to the series, Tina Turner. And uh, Bruce Spence is back, although playing... Not the same character that he was playing in the last movie, right. as far as we know. As far as we know, or he's just a very forgetful guy. Everybody is apparently very forgetful. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> recognizes anybody. So, uh, uh, yes. And uh, how did it? Uh, how did it hold up for you? I. Uh, uh, this is a very. 
problematic film for me. <laughs> is that is that really how you're going to... You're so no, gentle. I, well, no, here's the thing. I like this film. Whoa, whoa, no, whoa, no, whoa, whoa. It's, but it's kind of like a guilty pleasure sort of like. I don't better. think it's. I don't think it's a very good film. I like so many things in this film that just uh, don't work. And I wish that they had done it in a way that made it work because I feel like it could have been so good. Like, I really feel like there's something here that just didn't come through. And it, it just ends up disappointing me, even though I can still I can still look past it and I can still just enjoy the story of what's being told. But I mean, I think I mentioned it last week and I think I was a little off in the whole thing with Byron Kennedy dying. It wasn't location scouting for this. He actually died a couple years before this. But um, from what it sounded like, um, uh, George Miller was a little... Um, not quite in a place where he was wanting to just direct it by himself. And so he brought in George Ogilvie, a director that he had worked with on a, a TV series that they had done together called, was it called? The Dismissal, I think. Uh, it was a, an Australian miniseries that um, dramatized the events of the 1975 Australian Constitutional Crisis. Mm. And uh, yes. And, uh, <laughs> sounds like a dream. Sounds, <laughs> sounds like a winner. But um, they worked together there, and um, I guess he liked him enough that he brought him on board to help him direct this. I guess they they came up with some sort of a um, like a rehearsal style or a kind of a directing shorthand on the dismissal, and so Miller liked that and wanted to continue doing that with Ogilvy on on uh, Thunderdome, and so they, they, you know they they ended up working together on it. Um, I, I said last week that from what I read, uh, Ogilvy directed most of the um, story parts of the film and and Miller came in to direct most of the stunts. I watched kind of a, a behind the scenes thing and it kind of looks that way, but I do see Miller around all the time. So I think that he was still there. He may just not have been kind of the main point person. So I'm not quite sure, but I think... That ended up creating some of the problems with the story. I, like I said, I think it's a it has so many interesting ideas. I love the idea of Barter Town and and Ante and Thunderdome and even the kids. I, I like the idea of them, but all of it ends up having problems that uh, that uh, always makes me roll my eyes a little when I watch it. <laughs> and you are so gentle. <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Mad Max, these films are, uh, the the whole series, right, is kind of intrinsically ridiculous because, you know, we it, it presumes the absolute worst in society that that after some sort of a massive calamitous fall uh, that that we all will turn to our base criminal instincts and that will, you know, and, and what rises will be worse than what we had before, where which by our own existence today is proof that, that that would not happen, that we have an instinct to to discover, you know, new and innovative services, that when major calamitous things happen to us and happen to our communities, we we find another way around. We are an ingenious species, and so it is just sort of a, a fantastical world, and, and a, a, you, you take Mad Max with a bit of ridiculousness, because it's fun to look at this alternative 
potential horizon, right? It's it's fun culturally to put ourselves there to think what would I be like in this in this scenario and 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 to play, to let ourselves kind of have that imagination. So I I get that and that's that's how I ascribe Mad Max 1 and and 2. This film takes that hard-won alternative horizon right that that the the that reliably built itself in the first two films that those films had earned so well and it tosses it as far out the window as it possibly can it's like mad max if it had been directed by your favorite right luc besson and <laughs> and cast by Actually, spielberg's really? hook you know what i mean it is just a mashup that is terrible it is terrible in every single way it took me three days andy to watch this movie because it was either too boring or too incredibly painful to watch that i actually had to stop for a cleansing breath i i have so few positive things to say about this film and i'm stunned i'm stunned in researching this film that i would go to uh, the great ebert uh, may he rest in peace mm. and i read the first paragraph of his stinking review it says it's not supposed to happen this way sequels are not supposed to be better than the movies that inspired them the third movie in a series isn't supposed to create a world more complex more visionary and more entertaining than the first two sequels are supposed to be creative voids says the ebert but now here is mad max beyond thunder Thunderdome. Not only the best of the three Mad Max movies, but one of the best films of 1985. Four yeah, he, stars. He My stomach turns. List, yeah. <laughs> this is a horrible excuse for a film and a betrayal of the series that spawned it. Well, I think you're being harsh. I mean, I may be, <laughs> I may be a little overly gentle, but I think you are being a little overly harsh. Let me tell you, the thing I look forward to the most, <laughs> my fantasy sex session of uh, tonight, is to just see because I think the real toss-up is where will this film land next to Rush in my book? Man, you are mean. Holy cow, it is nowhere near as bad as all that. I, I think there's there is there is a lot of really interesting things here. And I love this I love that they found a way to kind of continue this world that takes place 15 years after everything else. People are still trying to scrap along. Now this is an interesting one because this is the only time when they have actually mentioned a nuclear war. Yes. It's the only time that that comes up and we uh get this sense now that um like there's nuclear fallout because the, the water salesman is trying to sell Max some water and Max pulls out his handy little, uh, you know, uh, whatchamacallit, what do you call those things? The little um, radiation reader yeah, yeah. thing? Geiger and counter. Geiger counter. And I think that there's a really interesting society that they've created in this story. And I, like I said, I just wish that they found a way to work it better. And also a big problem I have in this film is that it takes an hour and 22 minutes to get to Cars. That is one. <laughs> it, it's at the very top of my list of problems with the film. That, that it's a is film what... with <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, that is horrible. Yeah, but uh, and but then once the... it gets to cars, it doesn't really stay with cars very long. It, it, well, it has a great car. I mean, it it sticks with it. It has the whole the final car. Yeah, you're right. It's a, the the car on rails thing. Yeah, it's and, the train. It's yeah, cars, it's a, trains, cars, motorbikes, trains, and a plane and, and airplanes. Planes. Yeah, I, 
trains, I liked the whole and automobiles. Nice trains and automobiles. Ironically, another film better than Mad Max Beyond Thunderbird. I don't know if that's ironic. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, not ironic at all. <laughs> so, I mean, okay, I, I love the idea. Well, what, how do you want to talk about it? Do you want to talk like any specifics? Do you want to talk about Thunderdome itself? Do you want to talk about characters? What do you want to talk I about? Do. Let's, and, and I, I what would... do you want to gripe about the most? <laughs> oh, I, you know, really, pull it out of a hat, and I'll find a way to gripe about it. We could start with uh, Thunderdome itself, which I think is, um, it, it, it has been set up as the, you know, incredibly ingenious way to set up a fight. Yeah, and... <laughs> It's pretty absurd. It's really ridiculous. It's the giant stupid. rubber band fighting, yeah. which I mean, it makes me laugh. And and I know that these films are not ones that are like meant to kind of be comical and stuff. But uh, I don't know. I crack up in that fight. I think it's funny, <laughs> <laughs> like guilty pleasure. What can I say? It's it's just a. It just kind of gets so silly. And then at the end of it, when he's fighting Blaster and he takes the helmet off and he sees that it's just a mentally. Uh, a mentally impaired boy under the helmet, basically, and he can't kill him. I mean, I like all of that. I I think one of my biggest problems with the film is that, aside from the fact that Thunderdome isn't that strong, that it's so underused. Like, that's the only time we actually see Thunderdome in for this element to be in the title. I know it's beyond Thunderdome, but I'd like to have seen some more Thunderdome action going on. Really? I don't know how not, you could not, because not the, with the rubber band. Because the, I, just... I was going to say the central premise of Thunderdome, this ridiculous rubber band bouncy house, was <laughs> severed. And how could they possibly go on? Because clearly they've gone to the realm of vaudeville. You know where there's a Thunderdome, the uh, the Vancouver Mall. They have one right in the food court. And I make a joke that there's these rubber band, bouncy rubber band things. I, I make a joke with my kids that one day I'll have to show them Thunderdome because I call it the Thunderdome. Right. And and now I take that back because I'm never going to show my kids intentionally this movie. I'm going to try to burn it out of my computer. Oh, man. <laughs> it's, it is. It is uh, you're right. The, the, the thing is ridiculous. But I, I think what you said in the beginning is accurate, that conceptually this idea of um of the dangerous kind of ring the ring that poses danger in itself you know the the concept works so well in the walking dead where they they have essentially a thunderdome but it's not a full kind of dome it's a ring of zombies on chains and they put people in there to have a fight to the death and if you fall out of the ring then you're eaten by a zombie. So you're you're either dead in the ring or you're dead if you fall out of the ring. And I just I think that concept, which we see played out elsewhere, works really, really well. Here, I can't help but go back to the Luc Besson reference. Like the the way they cut to these character faces and go for the mugs and the eyes wide screaming and and the it's just I, there is no sense of intensity. It's just comedy. And and that that's why I I think this that sequence is is illustrative of the fact that they they didn't take this film as seriously as the last two, or at least portray it as seriously as the last two. I agree. Do you think that, uh, I mean, it's so hard to judge looking at another person's uh, kind of life and their career, but based on where uh, Miller ended up going after this, from this point forward, I mean, do you think that there is an element of him kind of looking back on some of the stuff that he did 
as a younger person and going, "Ah, I don't feel like I am that storyteller anymore. I mean, he does the Twilight Zone movie, one of the sequences that one of the best sequences in that movie. Right. Right before this. Um, but then afterward, it, it, he, his tone seems to change quite a bit as a director. The Witches of Eastwick, which is kind of a horror comedy. Um, Lorenzo's Oil. Lorenzo's Oil, which is straight up drama. Right. Babe uh, Pig in the City. Babe Pig in the City, which is, uh, well, this is where he gets into like the yeah. kid the kid zone. Babe right. Pig in the City, which is, I hated that. I thought it was terrible. Nothing like Babe. It was, it was, it was like, it was like a comic, uh, a comic book movie is really what it was more, but aimed at tots i thought it was just mm-hmm. terrible and then the happy feet movies right and so it seems like maybe he was because my understanding of this film is that he somebody presented this idea to him or they they were talking about uh, this story idea of this life in this post-apocalypse with where children were you know having to survive on their own and he really enjoyed that idea and was kind of developing it as a story and then he hit on the idea oh what if it was the next mad max film and so he turned this idea of a story of children living in the post-apocalyptic era um, and then brought Mad Max into it. And so it seems to me that he had already started latching – because I think the children portion of this is one of the weakest elements of the story. Um, but it seems like he was already latching on to that as the direction that he wanted to go. And he wanted to be softer and he wanted to maybe not be as, as uh, edgy as he was in the first two films. I, I think that is a, a great observation. I'd be interested to know, like, when children entered his life. Like, how old was he when kids of some sort kind of entered his his yeah. life? You know what I mean? Because that that may, um, you know, that may say something about it. Um, well, it's like Steven Spielberg said, Close Encounters, he would never have been able to make that movie once he had a family because he would never have been able to write or direct a film where the dad abandons his family and gets on a ship and goes into space with the aliens. Right, right. So it could be the same thing with George Miller. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's. I think there's really something to that because you can see such a direct trend. I mean, it, it's just like a switch was flipped and and he's suddenly making different kinds of films and and you know you can kind of see that in your own life right kind of creatively the things we were um you know things we were thinking about when we were writing kind of in in high school college and just after college are very very different in tone than the kinds of things we write now and and yet there is still some interest you know in in finding a way to tell some of those big stories like at the you have this urge to come back around to some of these bigger things and i think that's kind of what we're seeing in fury road and i can't wait to see that as as not just uh um you know a continuation of a series that i i love uh but as almost a, a redemptive film for you know to tell a story that maybe uh, he he hasn't been able to tell that's been sort of you know mulling around for for many years coming back to kind of basics or truth well and and it will we can talk about this more um when we talk talk about fury road but based on the fact that tom hardy's playing max he's he's still pretty young and now knowing that there's this 15 year window between thunderdome and mad max 2 I, I almost feel like Fury Road might take place in between the two because there's still fuel. People are still driving around a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, and they they seem to be talking about fuel and and dealing with all of that quite a bit still, uh, at least based on the trailers. So 
I am curious to see how it's going to fall within this uh, the storyline so far because I don't. It doesn't seem like it's going to take place after Thunderdome. Yeah, I I can't imagine. I mean, you know, Thunderdome's at a point where basically there is no fuel left, and the only fuel people are able to get is what they're making in the underworld here under Bartertown, uh, made out of all of these pigs, the meth- methane. <laughs> mm, hungry pigs. Yeah. So, yeah. pig story. Oh, okay. They had 400 pigs on set. Mm-hmm. And the Sydney City Council actually uh, said it was against health ordinances, and they had a Supreme Court injunction uh, put against the filmmakers to stop them from doing this. <laughs> but uh, so the filmmakers ended up, uh, I guess, I don't know if they had to go to court or whatever, but they ended up getting, uh, they were allowed to actually go ahead and use these 400 pigs in the scene in the underworld. But they had very specific rules that they had to abide by. Um, because everyone was concerned that these all the people were going to get horribly sick. So all the crew who were working down there, they had to wear white plastic outfits with knee-high boots so that they wouldn't get any germs. Every time they went in and out, they had to go through giant troughs to get washed off and hosed down. They had to have special air extraction fans built into the set to get all this you know toxic air out all the time. And on top of that, they had to take care of 400 pigs. <laughs> Did you ever get a sense that there were actually 400 pigs on screen? You know, I I don't know if I ever thought it was 400, but it sure looked like a lot of pigs. It looked like a like lot it, of pigs, but I didn't ever like imagine more than place. 100 pigs. I don't know. I mean, it's... it's I, I guess I wouldn't have imagined 400, but I would have imagined more than 100. I would have, I would have said maybe 150 or 200 tops. Yeah, that's a lot of pigs. And that's, that's a sign... No I mean, what, yeah. that's just a sign that... that um, I, I feel like the the you know is it stands against the cinematography. Like I feel like they're you know if they really have four hundred pigs, let's find a way to really demonstrate four hundred pigs to make it like let's why don't why don't we try to make it look like a thousand pigs rather than have yeah. four hundred and only make it look like two hundred. Yeah. Oh, that's very smart. Yeah. And I think that is something that we would I would say I would pin to George Ogilvy. I don't think I mean. We know Dean Semler knows how to shoot. He's a great cinematographer. He did a great job on The Road Warrior. This is a case where he's working a lot more, I'm guessing, in this particular place with George Ogilvy. um, And from looking at his uh, resume, it looks like much more of just a TV director. And so it makes me think that um, he just didn't have the vision to direct it in a way where Semler was able to capture it the way that would have made it stronger. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I I feel like that is a um, that is very much an impression that that resonates with me that this feels like a TV movie. There, you I don't get the sense of stakes. I don't get the sense of intensity. I don't get the sense of uh, of substance. Not, you know, all the sets, all the everything feels like a set. It feels like I'm watching people parade around on a set until the big uh, the big sort of finale car train automobile chase airplane chase that that yeah. suddenly gets back to a little bit of the of the the kind of metal and strength and just raw. Uh, muscle that I have come to expect from the series. So it gets better, even though it still comes off as sort of limp. Uh, in the end, I, I still feel like the, the set is at least something that is that is substantive and feels strong. Yeah. 
you know, the, the we got to talk about the costumes because that's something that we always seem to talk about. I liked the costumes, <laughs> except for their hair, but I like the costumes. What's up with the hair? God, I, I don't the know. hair was ridiculous everywhere. It just, you know, the hair strikes me as straight out of the 80s. And that was one of those decisions that they went with because it, you know, big hair, late 80s or mid 80s. You know, I don't know. I just think that that's why they went that did it that way. But I kind of have to forgive them slightly, but not that much. No, you really don't. I, it was it was bad, and at least it, it, there was some sense of of again redemption when they actually cut Mel's hair off. That felt good. Yeah, Tina was Tina was not not great on the hair. I mean, the hair front. toe cut toe cutter had great big hair, but yeah. there was something about his hair that just worked a lot. It better. fit, yeah, it fit. Yeah, um, but the but the costumes in general, I you know hers auntie, what's her name, auntie entity. Uh, I, I found her, uh, I, I mean, I get it. I, there's, I think there's, there is a place for the, uh, the matron, the strong matron who runs civilization, right? Uh, she is the maternal figure, the strong kind of maternal figure. And, um, that, that fits for me. I, I found her, her outfit was super distracting. Uh, they tried to just sex up a, a, dress a full-length dress of chain mail uh, which was ridiculous although i her as an actress tina as an actress i did i found okay i thought yeah, it was I, I thought it was pretty good i i think she's fine in the film she's she's definitely not something that's ever bugged me um in all the things that do bug me i have an easy time watching her and i i look past her look um the, i will say about the costumes in this film um I like I like we talked about last week. I like the way that they kind of have them fit with okay, if there was this big thing that happened, you're going to end up just kind of stuck wearing the same crappy clothes that had been around at that particular time. 15 years later, however, I feel that nobody is going to make be making these fancy chainmail dresses. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it seems like an awful lot of work for somebody to actually sit and do just to please auntie. Yeah, I, right. You know, I, I appreciate the ragged, uh, rough outfits a lot more than I do that particular outfit. What did you think of the power balance in Bartertown between uh, Auntie Entity and Master Blaster? It's one of those elements that I, again, I like that there is this this battle between the people above ground and the people below ground. I don't think it completely works. Part of that is because I just find the 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 two parts of the master blaster a little a little campy. Um, but uh, I don't know. I I still like the idea of the the power ba- imbalance. Um, it's just yeah. I just I I. I don't think they quite hit it. <laughs> I I also don't <laughs> think that they hit it. <laughs> I also don't. Uh, the master, the the top part of uh, Master Blaster, played by Angelo Rosito, uh, is uh, he came in at only two feet eleven inches tall. Um, but I I think he is a fantastic character actor. And I think he was woefully misused in this film. I thought that making him 
he just was not able to pull off the cadence of language, I think, that she exactly. needed him to speak in. And as a result, he came off as a lampoon. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Ridiculous. He, he was very problematic, the, the, the way that his dialogue was. I mean, I do like the concept of this little person who survives as the ruler of underworld because of this big person that is kind of his slave i think that's a really fascinating uh concept that just didn't work at all and you're right i mean his dialogue is just painful to listen to it's just so dumb and lumbering and it just it it doesn't fit for somebody who's supposed to be the brains of the operation it's like he talks like he's never been taught to talk yeah in and it was insipid really it was ridiculous yeah, the one thing about Angela Rosito that I think is awesome, though, is that he has been around forever. He was in Todd Browning's Freaks from, what was that, like 1932? 32, yep. Yeah, I mean, he has been around. He's been acting since 1927 and uh, just was in films with uh, Bella Lugosi and just uh, Lon Chaney, John Barrymore, um, just one of those guys who's been around for a very long time, and this was really kind of his last big, last big opportunity. So I think that is super, super cool. I I agree. I think it was it was a treat to see him in here. It feels a little bit like, um, I don't know. It it it's hard to say. And I wasn't paying much attention to you know the popularity of Angela Rosito when when this movie came out. But uh, it it's hard to say that it was stunt casting. But it certainly seemed like. Um, like there was there was some knowing in in casting Angelo in this role. It was well, a, it was a little bit frustrating. I just you know I don't know the the pairing of Master Blaster. I thought was again you you said it. The concept is is interesting. The execution is stupid. Yeah. Um. And and Angelo and Tina both I think ended up being a part of this film because this was the first of the trilogy that actually had American funding. The American financing behind it um, led to more Americans being cast in it. That's why Tina Turner ended up in this, and I'm guessing Angelo as well. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So uh, who actually... uh, So this is produced by... This is what, Warner Brothers? Yeah, I think Warner Brothers um, wanted to just jump on board and uh and uh brought uh brought some money into it i'm, I'm assuming it was warner brothers i don't know if there was a, a different uh, uh private investor who came on board as well but um uh considering that george miller is listed as the producer i it must have just been just a deal with warner brothers mm-hmm. boy it does feel like a 1980s american film doesn't it, it i mean does. just it, it opens yeah. to open with that the that horrible pop tune uh it, during oh, the one of the living credits yeah. yeah yeah it was just terrible um there were some you know we made this uh, this point last week about the uh, allusion to the man with no name and and in this one they really hang a, a flag on it you know the announcer that sort of game show host of thunderdome you know they they he introduces max as the man with no name uh you know walking out of the desert uh, right the man with skills uh and so i thought that was interesting um uh, what did you uh, what you think about from from the Thunderdome after they cut the rubber bands and, and knock the helmet off? We get the uh, break the deal, feel face the wheel, uh, where Max is is tossed out into the desert with a giant uh, mannequin head stuck on his head, riding a backward horse. 
And well, off, off he rides. Is, is it a backward horse? Who's backward in this situation? <laughs> <laughs> you have a good point. You have a, that is a that is an excellent point. He is backward. The horse is not. I again, either way, you get to the same uh, place. Yes, I, exactly. Uh, which also feels very um, uh, man with no name. You know, the uh, it reminded me of uh, Clint Eastwood sitting on the horse. Uh, actually, no, I guess it was uh, it was uh, Tuco. Right, who's yep. sitting on the horse with, with the noose around his neck and uh, is just <laughs> trying to keep the horse from riding away. It, it had that sort of feel to it, and um, I, I like the visual of him in the desert with this giant mannequin head on backwards or a paper mache head sort of thing on backwards. I think it's a very interesting visual. I don't think it. Um, I, I hate the whole, uh, you know face the wheel thing i think that's kind of silly yep um but uh and uh, you know and the fact that a monkey is brought along to kind of it the water, carries the water, the water out monkey. to him yeah, this, this is water i monkey. wrote that i drew a little monkey in my notes it's the water monkey <laughs> it's like the water boy i also drew the monkey. happiest pig right next to it and it says hungry in a little cloud bubble <laughs> my notes cute. are awesome <laughs> they are <laughs> The monkey, I, I think it's funny, um, was not actually a trained monkey. <laughs> just a lucky one. Yeah, just lucky to be in this. And um, apparently was really good at doing what it was told when they weren't filming. And as soon as they started filming, the monkey would just, <laughs> just basically sit there and jump up and down. And just like, you know, it's one of those monkey things. You could picture it just kind of bobbing up and down. And I, I saw some outtakes of the monkey. And it's just so funny because every time they're trying to get it to do something, it just stops and it just starts doing the up and down thing again. It's very funny. So they, you know, I don't know. That, the camels, <laughs> the pigs, they really, and, and then 52 kids also. I mean, they had a lot of, uh, I, I don't know why they put themselves through with animals and kids. they making it hard on themselves. And then I thought it was so funny because is it just me or when Mel is coming out of the desert, it looks like he's kind of trying to protect the monkey. He stuffs the monkey in his coat as he's walking through the sandstorm. And then he collapses on his chest. On the monkey. <laughs> on the monkey. And we never see the monkey again, right? I, did, I never do, saw do the do monkey we, again, no. Yeah, I was like, did the monkey come to the kid's place? But I don't think the monkey did. I think he crushed the monkey. I think he crushed the monkey. But that's okay, because he has really a thing for like not feeling anything about losing creatures or children in the desert. So he crushes the monkey, his horse gets swallowed up by the, the sand, oh, that's crazy. Yeah. by the earth, and then a child gets swallowed by the earth, and that is just completely forgotten within 50 frames. Yeah, well, it, he's mad. He's mad. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was not, not great. It was dark. It was definitely dark. But uh... <laughs> let's talk just a little bit about the environmental uh, setting, can we? Yeah. Because we're out in the desert, and I am not an environmental scientist. I really, I'm, I'm not. I have, to, I am cynical, and I am rage filled about this movie. But I'm not are. a scientist. So, how is it possible that these kids have found home in a cloud forest and they are what appears to be about 200 paces from the australian outback does that exist well it's like it's like an oasis i mean there are spots where water you know pools or there's a you know a little 
area of water or a river runs through it and then all around it is just desert. I mean, I think that's possible. I mean, it's like living in in Phoenix. I mean, there's desert everywhere, but when you get close to one of the riverbeds, all of a sudden there's just a lot of green and life kind of all along the river. But then, you know, you walk 50 feet away from that and it's just dry desert again. So I thought I, I, I thought so because where there's an In-N-Out burger near there. <laughs> well, that too. That too. Uh, I I found that uh, more difficult to believe because it just was it it felt like such a large oasis. Well, to me, maybe I, I'm. You're right. Maybe that does exist. Again, I am not an environmental scientist. It felt like a bridge too far to me. Well, and this this goes to another problematic uh, area I have with the film is that okay, they're not that far apart, but the kids and Barter Town. Yeah, it's about twenty I would, minutes. I would think that. In all the people coming and going from Bartertown, theoretically, I guess there's people coming and going from Bartertown. Somebody's going to stumble across this oasis these kids have, mm-hmm. and every from everybody from Bartertown is going to go, "Hey, let's move there because that looks way better than where we're living," <laughs> and and kick either kick these kids out or make them be their little slaves or, or something. These kids have it so good, and they're like, "Oh, we're waiting for the the guy to come from the sky and take us away from here." It's like, why would you want to leave? You are in the the perfect little paradise you are the only people to have found paradise and you want to escape it to go live in the city which is <laughs> destroyed <laughs> so that you can hang out in the empty buildings like it's it's just nonsense i mean they should be in the empty buildings trying to get to an oasis <laughs> well you know kids here's the thing kids, never happy never happy right here's the thing with the kids so mad max one this is this is what i call the uh, mad max heartstring continuum so okay. uh, in Mad Max 1, they pull our heartstrings because of the relationship with Max and his wife and child, which is just really, I think, great. I've talked about that before. I won't belabor it. In Road Warrior, um, they try to have to, to pull on the heartstrings because of the community connection. It's no longer really the family connection, the explicit family, but the implicit family that comes from helping a community to achieve something else great, Right. So yep. that that's kind of in the middle. So you know, if you imagine it a teeter totter, right? You're you know the the family one really pulls at the heartstrings, and that's just you know. And then you're right in the middle is the road warrior, and heartstrings aren't really all that pulled, but you get it. And this one, what role are the kids supposed to play? To me, they're on this heartstring continuum, which is the sledgehammer of heartstrings so now it's not just one kid and your wife it's all the kids and they need a daddy and you're going to be the surrogate daddy in in the middle of the oasis in the middle of the desert and it totally fails on that front because like uh, uh master and his incredible uh incredibly labored language they give these kids this labored language that does not fit their mouths and it it just falls flat hearing them speak and tell these stories it's not natural it's not a natural uh patois that uh, i could ever quite wrap my head around it always felt like kids on a playing on a stage Uh, Uh, it's terrible it's painful to listen to it's just it's nonsense um I, i can't stand listening to the kids i really i really don't like the kids 
the, everything having to do with the kids, I just don't like in this film. It's yeah. I would much rather just have the whole thing be in Martyr Town in the underworld. I think you just. Um, I think that's it because this really. And, and hearing you talk about uh, how this was originally conceived as a standalone story, I can totally see that. Like I can see these oh, as yeah. two separate movies, and I think that would. I think if you really gave it the time to breathe, of course. They, they sort of did that in Solar Babies, or dare I say, <laughs> Lord of the Flies. You know, I mean, we 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 get what happens when kids are left to their own devices. Um, but this is an interesting setting, and you're telling it in a new and in, insightful way. I would love to see Mad Max with children, but it would. It, it, this wasn't it. No, and, and I do. Again, I really enjoy the idea of these kids speaking their own language because. 15 years after um, The Road Warrior and five years – this is another thing I learned. Road Warrior takes place five years after Mad Max. So it's been 20 years since the war. Right. So this is a That's, generation that hasn't lived these, with civilization. Yeah. And so they've grown up and they've made up their own language. And, and the words that they don't remember, they just kind of create new ones. And, and to that end – I think it's a really fascinating idea. It just never works. And and it fails on that front. The Mad Max heartstring continuum just yes. falls flat off a cliff. Uh, we've been talking about this movie for an hour. Do you? What else do you have on your list? Because I'm going to poke my eyes out. Because <laughs> I can't take it anymore. I want to just go jump into the Thunderdome. <laughs> Put me in on. the Thunderdome. <laughs> Put me in. Um, Maurice Jarre did the uh, score for this, uh, his first foray with uh, the Mad Max series, um, taking over for Brian May. Um, his music has a little more thematic stuff going on. I like some of the stuff that he's done in some of his bigger films, notably Lawrence of Arabia, one of his biggest ones. Also, Ghost, I think, is uh, one that he's very well known for. Dr. Zhivago, Passage to India. Uh, Solar he's done Babies. Some- He's done some big, big things. He didn't do Solar Babies, he did he? Most certainly did. Did he? Oh, he did. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> that is so fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! But um, I I, I kind of like some of his themes in here. It's not uh, one of my favorites. Um, but none of the music in these films have ever overwhelmed me. But I do think they work in context, and so I'll give him that. Yeah, I I was so distracted by the Tina Turner pop tunes in the in it that I just the music just kind of well, washed over me. It, it's it, just the beginning and the end. It is, it is. But and, it was a I'll, bookend of pain. Bookends of I, pain. Really, I love. We don't need another hero. What? what? I Andy? love that song. I do. I do. Total guilty pleasure. Oh, I, I don't know. Goodness. I think it's just. It's. I don't know what it is. I just love that song. <laughs> <laughs> just always have. Uh, Are you? Yeah. Is your left arm numb? I think you might be having <laughs> some sort of an event. That's, that's right. I am. Um, Richard Francis Bruce came on to do the editing. We've talked about him before, I believe, haven't we? I, seven. Yeah, yeah, seven. Right. Um, I think he is a uh, somebody that's divergent. always divergent. Uh, a divergent, yep. yeah. Um, he's uh, somebody that's done quite a lot of uh, stuff and uh, has worked with George Miller a few times. This is his first time working with George Miller. And, uh, you know, I I don't think it's... Uh, I, I guess there's nothing to write home about. But I do think that the editing in the stunt scenes are... I, I think it works really well. 
And to that end, uh, George Miller had a quote about uh, the way that stunts are, are done, and I thought it was pretty good because he's like, I think people think that stunts are uh, more, yeah, is the spectacle of the stunts, and quite often that's not the case. You need a very good stunt, but it's the shots that lead up to it, the little pieces of film that you join together to give you the illusion of something happening. That's probably more important. And watching some of the behind-the-scenes stuff of this, it really did put it into context for me because you get so used to watching some of these amazing stunt scenes that they're doing in these films, and you kind of forget that at, at the pace at which films get made, and you forget how tedious it is to set up one little movement of something happening just to kind of blow up a car or to have something um, have somebody fall, and it's all of those other shots that they that they uh, bring together to actually create that stunt to make it so alive on the screen. And so I do give Richard Francis Bruce quite a bit of credit for that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. The the number of cameras, the number of shots to pick up a, a second of footage to end up in a 15 or 20 second sequence that is mind-blowing uh, yeah. is mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the plane that Jebediah is flying is a very funky film uh, made by Transavia Agricultural, uh, I guess. It's a little agricultural survey craft, and it's just unique to Australia, these little tiny planes. And I have never seen them anywhere else, and I think it's so fun seeing this funky little plane flying around. You know what? I think it's a clown plane. <laughs> they sure seem to fit a lot of people they into fit it. like 20 kids running across the <laughs> desert in the belly of this little tiny tiny plane and it turns out it was just overweight by one mel gibson by one mad max yeah yes it was yes it was um then let's see uh two more things i think um this was just a funny quote from Tina Turner about this film. I think you'll appreciate quite a bit. Tina, <laughs> in the making of, had this to say about the film. I feel like I've done the greatest thing I've ever done in my entire life. <laughs> Thank God none of your fans agreed. <laughs> oh, Tina. Oh, Tina, Tina, Tina. Jeez, I, Tina. Yeah. Yep. Oh, man. <laughs> so, yes, so there's that. And then um, I guess there are two more things. One of the last two things. I love the movie poster for this. Um, Amsel, Richard Amsel did the poster design for this. And he's done some really cool uh, posters. Just Like he did the Flash Gordon poster. That's so cool. He did the original Raiders of the Lost Ark poster. I just love his stuff. And... Despite what you think about this film, I love the design of the poster. I think it has a really just a beautiful, exotic look. And even with Tina's hair taking up almost like the top half of the poster, I just think it is a sweet, sweet poster. Okay. I'm looking at it. You know, it 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 is. It's I, I get it. It reminds me of uh Star Trek five the undiscovered was it the undiscovered country that's the, six or six what was the search for god that was five that was five what was uh, it called that was, that was uh that was the forgettable the, one the final frontier final frontier oh. yeah yeah that's it? what yeah. i think of when i see this because it has all the 
And, and I don't know, I'm not looking at the Final Frontier poster right now. It may not be look, looks like that at all, but that's what I see. Yeah. I that's see. Possible. Look look at the kid. Look at the Lost Boys. Aren't they cute? Where's Peter? I know, I know. With the with like the handheld crossbow. What an amazingly inefficient weapon. <laughs> it's very tiny. It's practically nerf. <laughs> it's a little nerf. It's awesome. It's just oh, so, so funny. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um and then, and then the last little thing I wanted to say yeah. is they filmed the train stuff on there's there's one train track that got, cuts across the outback in Australia, and it's it's the only one, uh, to my understanding, that goes right through there. At least it was at the time. And they were um, and there are a lot of trains that go on this, and they actually had to time all of the stunts with the train just right so that they could actually get the shots, and then they had to take everything off the tracks as quick as they could so that the trains could continue running. And because of that, they actually were able, they they kept having these situations where they'd get to a point where all of a sudden like, oh, we're going to have to abandon it. They have to take everything off the tracks and let the trains go by and then they'd have to come back the next day and try it again. Which I think is, it seems like a horribly inefficient way to do it, but when you want to shoot a train track in the outback, that's really the only way. And I only really wanted to bring this up because when I was a kid, my mom, who is from Australia, took us on a trip across Australia Australia on this very train track and so and so I had to confirm this with her I'm like did we actually take the train track through the outback and she's like yes we did and she's like don't you remember all the kangaroos jumping around I'm like I don't remember that at all but I know I took the train track and so I like to think that it happened to be around this time I'm I'm sure it was years apart but in my head now I just want to envision (laughs) that vehicles ready to blow up were just waiting off of the tracks waiting for us to go by (laughs) so that they could go out and film it that's a great story that's a great Uh, story yes and it's my last so I say we talk about money this film, um, considering it was the big American-funded one, uh, and this was, had a big $10 million budget, um, which at the time, it, now it's about 21.7, so a decent budget for a big uh, post-apocalyptic stunt movie, ended up grossing only in the U.S. about $36.3 million, and in Australia, not quite $3 million. It didn't make a ton of money, uh, but it still made its money back. It's the uh, least um, grossing of the three. It ended up making about $592,000 per finished minute. So, you know, it still did okay for itself. It's just not uh, up there with the other two. Yeah, probably did too well. <laughs> just let that sink in. <laughs> Uh, it was the mid '80s. This was people liked watching this sort of stuff. I loved it when I first saw it in the you know whenever I rented it. I you know I I think that's probably true because uh, and I think this may be one that I saw in the theater. Um, well, this was this was PG thirteen. The other two were R, yeah. so this was was the first one that either of us probably could have seen. Yeah, yeah. I think I remember seeing it. I think I was so excited that I saw it in the theater. That I probably loved it at the time, but I was young and so <laughs> stupid that I would have really liked this one. Uh, and I, th- I probably liked it for the little kid on the end, standing on the berm where they covered the tracks with dirt. Right. He says, this is a stick-up <laughs> with his giant guns. And then I, that, I did, I really loved that little kid. Yes, uh, he was funny. Let's rank it. Let's see what happens. Let's do it. 
head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. And seriously, you have to rank this movie in your own collection and see how it stacks up. Because I have just been cruising Amazon reviews and I am blown away by the number of four and five star reviews for this film. I can't, I feel like I'm on another planet that we're just not seeing the same movie. Um, that so many people say this is great. This is the best of the three. This is so exciting. I am blown away. So I want, I please rank this and see how it compares with our ranking. And oh dear, Andy, you and I are going to have to come to words if this is better than anything else on our list right now. (laughs) Well, first up, uh, this should help. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome or Mad Max? Oh, I think we can both safely yes. say Mad Max. Mad Max. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome or Gattaca? Gattaca. I will say Gattaca. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome or Cloverfield? Also, I will say Cloverfield. So will I. I think I can hear the, the whistling of, of wind due to an <laughs> object falling from a great height. <laughs> Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome or The Dead Zone? The hmm. Dead Zone. I really had problems with that this time around. Yeah. I would actually, well, would I do Mad Max? <laughs> this is one where I have problems with both of these yeah, films. And you know what? You don't have to watch either of them ever again. But really, seriously? If I, I, I'll go the dead zone because it does, there is a stronger character element at the end of the film. There you go. Uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome or Scoop? I will wholeheartedly do Thunderdome here. I, was, there was no... I mean, Scoop was terrible. There was nothing... nothing. Scoop was not Scoop was not good. But Scoop was not good. It had, Scar, uh, it had Scar Joe. It, yeah, in possibly one of her worst films ever. Doesn't matter. You've got to at least give it to Thunderdome for at least the concepts. You know, what's funny is I totally don't. I can't. I just can't. Are you ready? I can't believe you're picking Scoop over this. I, like the last, Andy. I don't ever have to watch either one of these again, but this was a terrible film. Oh, oh. all right. Well, we'll do it, but I... I, I can't believe we're doing... We're rock, paper, scissor watering over, over Scoop. Scoop. I can't believe we're doing it over Scoop. Oh, I can't either. I think that uh, you got to give it a little bit for... All right, fine. but okay. Uh, no, I. You know what? For you, I will give it to you. I. You can have it. At least, just just think of at least the last you for know, the kid. 10, it's 15, for the, the little 10, kid. The ten fifteen minutes of the last chase scene. At least there is. I don't even visceral. necessarily have to for that because you know why? Let me tell you why. Because crazy, crazy warlord guy who has the second head on a stick attached to his first head when he uh-huh. grabs the thing and is hanging off the side of the train, he's actually. He's actually saying, ooh, ooh, and blowing on his fingers alternately <laughs> because it's hot. He's actually, ooh, ooh, ooh. He, I don't think he was doing that. Re- he was doing that. It is I have to so go watch that again to see if he's doing that because I don't recall that at and all. And then they saw it off, and it was like straight out of a Wile E. Coyote cartoon. It was, it was insufferable. Oh man! All right, I give it to you because we're friends, and I don't want to. I don't want this to mess with our relationship. <laughs> But it's terrible. <laughs> okay. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome or Marty? Marty. And I hated yeah. Marty. I know you did. I'll, I'll go with Marty because I liked Marty. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome or The Hospital? Uh, the Hospital. 
I would do Thunderdome. We're going to have to rock, paper, scissors right, this fine. one. Ready? One, one two, two, three, three paper. paper. One, one, two, two three, scissors. scissors. <laughs> one, one, two, two three, scissors. One, two, three, water. Water rust scissors. <laughs> oh, I think I win when someone <laughs> throws water in again. <laughs> Oh my Water goodness. is in your eyes, and it's from a <laughs> toilet. So you live with that. You can have your <laughs> Thunderdome, but you also have toilet water in your face. Oh, toilet water. All right, look at that. Uh, this has ended up below Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. <laughs> There's a problem with that. I really have a problem with that. You know what? I, I'm going to tell you straight up, Andy. I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> I honestly wanted to. I wanted a showdown between this and Rush. I, this was a terrible experience, but I loved our conversation. This was great fun. It was fun. It's at one seventy-seven out of one eighty-four, so it is in the bottom, definitely in the bottom ranking here. All right, you. Uh, I. I think it should be no surprise where we go next. Yes, this is uh, quite exciting. We are going to uh, hit the theaters and catch a little <laughs> Mad Max Fury Road. I'm very excited. Are you going to see it in 3D? Uh, it, is it's, it, it's is it fake real? 3D. It's fake 3D. It's no, fake I probably 3D. won't then. I have I yeah. have come to terms with the fact that I'm done. I'm just sort of done with the 3D. It'll all be based on time. If that's the only time I can do it. But my intention is just to see it on the nicest theater we have. Yeah, I it, think that's my goal yeah. as well. So, I'm definitely looking forward to it. I wonder if it's Atmos. I may have to try to catch it in Atmos if it's going to be. You know what would be great? The, our only Atmos theater is in the mall where there is the th- Thunderdome. That's hilarious. So I may actually need to do that just to be there. That would be really fun to go play in the Thunderdome. And then, then go, go see Mad Max. Then go see. <laughs> oh, All right, so Andy. Funny. I gotta go to bed. All right. I'm gonna go uh, hop in the Thunderdome. <laughs> I need some rubber band band exercise. Yeah, the emphasis is good. You could hop in the Thunder, or you could go hop in the Thunderdome. (laughs) Or hop in the Thunderdome. You're a complex character, Andy Nelson. So mine's a five star by Bobby Cald, <laughs> who, just, who just has this to say. This is my most favorite in the trilogy. The first two are more violent. This one has more comedy and adventure as well. Great actors. Because really, by number three, comedy and adventure is what was missing from the Mad <laughs> Max trilogy. Exactly. That's what we needed. Mm-hmm. Mine is a one star from Victor Marshall, and I am I am sh- ashamed that you and I did not make this connection. Uh, his review, one star. It is not a real Mad Max movie. 
is the title of his review. Okay. Mad Max and Road Warrior were brilliant essays on society's need for a hero and the inevitable triumph of a society that has a hero. Hollywood needed a way to package the Mad Max franchise and present it to an American audience, and Tina Turner had a hit album out back when the movie was made, so Thunderdome seemed like a good idea to the accountants on the committee that made this movie. Interesting to note that the We Don't Need a Hero Tina Turner song was in this movie, so I guess any Mad Max movie in which a hero is needed, that's a good movie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's also interesting to compare Mad Max Road Warrior to Lethal Weapon, in which they do talk about actually needing a hero. In fact, many of the scenes in Lethal Weapon are extremely similar to scenes in Mad Max Road Warrior if you change the clothes on the, act- the actors were wearing and the setting. Just change Max Rokotansky's reflexes for Riggs' shooting accuracy, and you can see that the Mad Max franchise was successfully repackaged as the Lethal Weapon franchise. So, go buy Mad Max Road Warrior Lethal Weapon or Lethal Weapon 4, but Thunderdome is dross. Wow. He's totally right. I, right? I, he's completely wrong about Lethal Weapon 4. Yeah, no, no, no. But I, yeah, that's that. I agree with that. But but about the uh, hero thing, I thought that was fairly amusing. That was a that great connection. That is kind of funny. Yeah. Any Mad Max film in which we need a hero, that's going to be a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> if we don't need another hero, it's not even Mad Max. Then what's the point? I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.